Well, good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can grab it and turn to Acts chapter 3. Uh, this morning, I'm, I'm deviating from my sermon plan because, honestly, uh, this week has not gone according to my plans at all. Uh, the, the trouble started for the Washburn house on Monday night with a couple rounds of, of vomit from our, our youngest boy. And uh, after a, a few weeks of, of sinus infections plaguing our home in August, I was adamant that we weren't going to start September with the stomach virus. Uh, Lacey knew that, that the stomach virus was in the house. I mean, she knew this immediately, and, and yet she still listened to all my theories. I was saying things like, maybe he just got, you know, too hot under the covers, or, or you know, it's probably allergies, or, or wait a second, didn't he drink milk last night? He usually doesn't drink milk. I mean, he could be lactose intolerant. Maybe that's what it is. He's lactose intolerant, and that caused him to be sick. And looking back, I don't really know if I was trying to convince her or trying to convince myself, but either way, I was wrong. And I found this out at 2.30 a.m. on Thursday morning when my worst fears were confirmed and Tripp's stomach bug had been passed from him to me. And I'm not going to get into the details of how that went, but I'll just tell you anecdotally that in 24 hours, I lost four pounds. And while it was an effective weight loss strategy, I certainly wouldn't recommend it to any of you. So needless to say, my, my week kind of got turned upside down. I wasn't really able to give proper attention to that last section of Colossians chapter 3. So I shifted my attention to a more familiar uh, passage. And so our new plan is this morning we're going to look at Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Then we're going to spend the next two Sundays finishing Colossians, and then on October 10th, we'll start Philippians. So once again, this morning, we're looking at Acts chapter 3. As many of you know, I grew up with, with two younger brothers, no sisters. My brother Tarver, who's the middle brother, is easily the most introverted man in our family. He's very quiet. Uh, he's laid back, sometimes laid back to a fault. And because Tarver's so low-key, people sometimes wonder why he isn't gifted in the same ways as the rest of the Washburn men. You know, my dad is a, a textbook extrovert. He is the life of the party. I mean, he's, he, he repeats a little bit of his material, but he's always got a great story to share. When he became a pastor in his mid-50s, people were amazed at how quick he, was, he became comfortable in the pulpit. But, but for our family, I mean, we weren't surprised. We're like, yeah, he's never had any trouble talking like at all. And so to get up for 45 minutes every Sunday and, and talk, I mean, his spiritual gift is talking, right? And, and I'm not as outgoing as, as dad, but obviously I've, I'm, I'm called to preach and, and teach in, in different capacities on a regular basis. Then you have my youngest brother, Will, uh, who's the real star of the family. I mean, Will has been in the spotlight for all of his life because he's incredibly talented. He can sing, he can act, he can paint, he can draw. I mean, growing up, he was constantly in front of crowds, starring in plays and singing solos. Now, to be fair, full disclosure, he's really bad at sports. He can't throw a spiral, hit a jumper, or turn around a fastball, but he is good at pretty much everything else. And so this is kind of our family dynamic. And a few years ago, after Will sang a solo during the Sunday morning worship service at our home church, a woman approached Tarver and said, so Will sings and Bo preaches 
and your dad preaches, what do you do? And unfortunately, over the years, Tarver's been approached with similar questions from time to time. Now, surely these folks aren't insinuating that Tarver's some sort of heathen. They aren't saying, I mean, what are you doing with your life? You have a brother that's a worship leader and two preachers and you're an accountant? Ugh, you know, like no one's saying that, but they are, but they, they do see his father and his two brothers serving the Lord in invisible, tangible ways. And they become a little bit curious about, well, what does he bring to the table? And the truth is, a lot. But Tarver teaches a young adult Sunday school class. He leads a middle school small group. He drives the church van. He runs slides for the tech team. He sits on the finance committee, and he's a, a deacon in his church. You know, he faithfully serves his Savior in his church week after week, and his his, his work usually gets unnoticed by most, but God sees it. And understand that, that Tarver's ministry is less public, but not less important. Because the gospel can move in a variety of ways. Now, God is constantly drawing men, women, and children to himself through the ministry of his word. And God is using ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary will. And he's been doing this since the beginning. And we especially see this. In the book of Acts, we see many normal, ordinary men and women taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And here in Acts 3, we're going to see one of these stories. The story is centered on the, the first miracle after the ascension of Jesus. And as a result of this miracle, God uses the testimony of an extremely ordinary man to bring Hundreds and hundreds to salvation. So let's briefly discuss the, the events leading up to our text. And in chapter 1, Jesus gave the Great Commission to his disciples. He commanded them to take his story to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to every corner of the earth. Then in chapter 2, while his disciples were in the midst of a 10-day prayer meeting, the Holy Spirit showed up, and, and the disciples were empowered by the Spirit to begin preaching the gospel in a town square, and over 3,000 were saved. So the first megachurch in history was established, the ends of Acts chapter 2, and, and we're told at the end of that chapter, because this church was devoted to teaching, preaching, fellowship, and praying, that God continued to bless their ministry as more and more came to faith in Him. God was using ordinary men and women to turn the city of Jerusalem upside down for their good and his glory. <coughs> Excuse me. So at the start of chapter 3, we get an inside look at, at, what, at what Luke would call signs and wonders at the end of chapter 2. We, we see one of these signs and wonders. We see God use Peter and John to execute an incredible miracle, which leads to a gospel movement. So let's start Let's start reading in verse 1. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms for those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Peter directed his gaze at him, and so did John, and they said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something of them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, 
But what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. <coughs> Excuse me. So, Peter and John were heading into the temple for the third prayer hour of the day. According to Old Testament law, Jews were instructed to pray at 9 a.m., 12 p.m., and 3 p.m in the temple. And as they're walking, they, they notice this beggar being carried to the temple gate to beg for donations. And this lame beggar was lame since birth. We find out later in chapter four that he was 40 years old. So for four decades of his life, he's been dealing with some sort of physical ailment, making it impossible for him to walk. And so each day he would depend on friends and family to throw him over their shoulder and carry him to the temple gates where they'd lay him down on a blanket. Even though his disability hindered him from having a steady job in the ancient Roman Empire, he, he found this, this revenue stream. I mean, he, he, wasn't a, he was a smart guy. He understood that the temple gates were the perfect spot for a beggar because he knew three times a day, every day, Jews would pour into the temple for their prayer ritual. And he knew many of these Jews love looking holy and righteous in front of their fellow man. And so he was more than happy to, to set up shop and take their donations that they attempted to impress others with their good works outside the temple. So he was profiting off this, this basic human desire that we have to, to appear righteous, to appear morally good. Now, I'm not saying every person who gave money to the beggar was only motivated by appearing generous in front of others, but I would guess that many of them were. Now, we still see this sort of thing play out today. Now, maybe you've seen on social media where someone writes a long post about how they, they gave money to a homeless person. Or, or maybe you've been on, on YouTube and, and, and you've, you've seen these countless videos of, of millionaire content creators giving away cars and houses and stacks of money. You know, one day they're, they're posting a video of a stunt, which is incredibly stupid and reckless, and the next day they post a video with the title, I gave a homeless man $10,000, or I bought my friend his dream car. Now to clarify, I'm not belittling these gestures, but I'm wondering if they're being generous out of the goodness of their hearts, or if they're being generous for the praise of their millions of subscribers. Nine times out of ten, it's probably the latter. See, Pharisees and YouTubers both want to be applauded for their good works. <coughs> but Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. They may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand See what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. See, the desire to be 
seen as, as good, upstanding, morally superior is not a new sensation. The world has changed, but people haven't. And so the lame beggar was, was smart to take advantage of, of this false piety. Now, even though he had this steady source of income, he couldn't have lived a happy life. I mean, he would have had to have laid on this blanket from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day to, to cover all three hours of prayer. And in the summer, he laid in the heat. And in the winter, he laid in the cold. And, and plus, he was an outcast in his community. Many Jews would have felt a little sympathy for him and, and tossed a few coins his way. But they wouldn't have really felt too bad for him because some of them would have believed that his physical disabilities were God's punishment for his sins or the sins of his family. You know, so they would have given to him, but they wouldn't have necessarily engaged in conversation with him or treated him as equal. I mean, day after day, he laid on the ground as men and women stepped over him to get into the temple. For 40 years, he lived as, as if he was less than human. And then, if we can go back a few months before this moment, or I guess a few years before this moment, he probably experienced a jolt of hope when he heard about a miracle worker named Jesus who was traveling through the region. You know, Scripture doesn't give us any other references to this lame beggar, but we know that these gates of the temple where he laid out each day were the same gates that Jesus made several appearances. So it's certainly possible that Jesus was near him, but didn't heal him. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus performed miracles, cast out demons, healed the sick and the lame, and yet he walked, he could have very well walked right by this lame beggar. And we know Jesus was aware of his ailments. Even if Jesus didn't encounter him on earth, he created him, he knew him, and he loved him, but still he walked right past him. He was capable of healing his disability. He was fully aware of his struggles, but he didn't do anything for him. And so I want you to, to put yourself in the lame beggar's shoes for a minute. So I want you to think about his, his mental state when we get to Acts 3. You haven't been able to walk your entire life. As a kid, you watch other kids go play. As a teenager, you watch other teenagers learn a trade or prepare to join the work, workforce. As an adult, you watched other men get married and start having children. As you sit and watch the world passing you by, you slowly become frustrated, bitter, and angry about your plight, and you start to wonder if your life has any value at all. And then you hear about Jesus. Then you hear about this, this new prophet. You hear this, this, this chatter coming in and out of the temple each day. You hear about this healer for the first time in four decades. You start to consider the possibility that your life may change for the better, but then Jesus passes you by. Jesus doesn't stop for you. Jesus doesn't even look at you. And then you hear talk of a crucifixion. And you submit to the fact that you'll never be healed of your disability. So when we get to Acts 3, the lame beggar was down in the bottom of the valley. He was in the darkest pit. He was without a single glimmer of hope. But his story wasn't over. 
<clears throat> Listen, God could have healed the lame beggar during Christ's earthly ministry, but he didn't. Instead, God used Peter and John to heal him in the name of Jesus a few months later. So as Peter and John are, are, are entering the temple, he asks them for money, and they, they lock eyes, and Peter says to him, Look at us. I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And he grabs his hand, and Scripture says immediately his feet and ankles were made strong, and he leapt up and followed Peter and John in the temple. And when he entered the temple, my boy went Pentecostal. He is dancing, he's running, he's singing, he's walking, leaping, and praising God. The entire temple immediately recognized him as the beggar from the temple gates, and they were astonished. They couldn't believe their eyes. And as the beggar was skipping through the temple, praising God, his testimony of God's faithfulness opened the door for Peter to address the entire temple. And then we start to see what God is working out through his story. Verse 12. <clears throat> and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter didn't preach a lot of warm and fuzzy sermons in the start of Acts. And, and similar to, to Pentecost, he, he rose up in front of the crowd and he explained this unusual event which they had all just witnessed. And he starts by, by drawing attention away from him and John. So why do you wonder this? Why do you stare at us as if we did this with our powers, as if we did this with our piety, as if we were the ones that made him walk? Peter wanted to be clear about the source of the power behind the miracle. He says, this wasn't us. This was the God of your fathers. This is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's the one who, who, who made this miracle happen. And as Peter explained God's plan playing out through the work of Jesus, he established two fundamental gospel truths in the first half of his, his sermonette here. One, Jesus is the Messiah, and two, you're guilty. That's what he has for the crowd. One, Jesus is the Messiah, two, you are guilty. In verses 13 through 15, Peter calls Jesus the glorified servant, the, the righteous and holy one, the author of life and the resurrected king. He says he is the the glorified servant from Genesis 3, Isaiah 53, and Psalm 22. He left his seat at the right hand of God to humble himself to the will of his Father. He is the holy and righteous one who was the first and only in human history to be able to live up to God's standard of morality. He was sinless and perfect. He's the author of life 
from Genesis 1 and John 1. He was with God and he was God. He was present at creation and all things were made through him. He's the light of the world. He was the light in the darkness and he is the resurrected king. He fulfilled the scriptures and restored Israel with his work on the cross and God raised him from the dead on the third day and he ensured none of his children would ever taste death. And so Peter plainly details Christ's part in God's redemptive plan for his people by using familiar titles, familiar terms from the Old Testament scriptures. He clarified that Jesus was the chosen one whom they'd been waiting for, that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. And so this reality comes crashing down on everyone that's in the temple. Because all of the Jews in the temple are thinking to themselves, okay, if Jesus Christ is the Messiah, then we're in trouble. Then we're guilty before God. And Peter doesn't shy away from this. Throughout these verses, Peter lays out the bad news for them point blank. He, he recounts their part in, in Jesus going to the cross, that they came into the garden with torches and swords. They took him into custody. They delivered him over to the Jewish authorities. They denied him in front of the Roman government official Pontius Pilate. And when Pilate saw that Christ was innocent, that Christ hadn't committed any crimes, he attempted to let him free. He offered to release one Jewish prisoner, Jesus of Nazareth or, or Barabbas, the notorious murderer. And they scream, give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. We want Barabbas. They said, let Christ be crucified. And when Pilate pushed back and asked, why? Like, what evil has this man done? They yelled again, let him be crucified. And as the crowd moved closer and closer to a full riot, Pilate started to realize that he had little to gain and much to lose. So he washed his hands in front of them and said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the crowd shouted, his blood will be on us and on our children. At the time, they didn't realize they were speaking accidental prophecy. And they watched with excitement as Jesus was beaten, ridiculed, and led to the cross. They watched him suffer on Calvary. They watched him draw his last breath. And they never questioned their motives because they firmly believed they were standing on the right side of history. Until they weren't. A few months later, after one miracle... In one half of the sermon, they realized they were guilty before a holy God. And by the way, coming to a full realization of the bad news is not a bad thing. You know, in much of our church culture, we, we rush to the good news with every sermon, with every Sunday school lesson, with every Bible study, with every conversation. We want to get back to the good news. And I'm not saying that's wrong or that's unwise to do so. I'm not saying we shouldn't encourage each other in the gospel. But I am saying that you can't fully appreciate the good news until you fully understand the bad news. Until you fully understand 
that each one of us was born into sin. Each one of us was alienated from God. Each one of us stood in the same position as these Jews who were under the sound of Peter's voice, and God would have been completely justified in ending their story and our story with eternal punishment. God has every right to hold us accountable for all of our shortcomings, but he didn't. You know, one of the the most beautiful phrases in the New Testament, John Stott says one of the most beautiful phrases in the entire English language is, but God. We see it in in Ephesians 2. Paul charts the bad news very clearly in Ephesians 2. He says, you were dead, but God. You were following the, the prince of power, the heir, but God. You were a son or daughter of disobedience, but God. You were listening to the passions of your flesh, but God. You were destined to be a children of wrath, but God, and he turns that corner in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2 and says, But God, being rich in mercy because of great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us to live together in Christ by grace. You have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. See, if you're in Christ, verses 4 through 7 are a great summary of what God has done for you. You were dead in sin, now you're alive in Christ. You were being sabotaged by Satan, now you're secure in Christ. You were enslaved by your will, now you're submitted to God's will. You were a child of wrath, now you're a child of God. You were destined for hell, now you're heading to heaven. See, God always has good news to counter the bad news. And as Peter keeps going, we start to see this good news in verse 17. He says, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all prophets that this Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send, excuse me, that he may send Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all the things which God spoke by mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So here's, here's two bits of good news that Peter has for us there. One for the present and another for the future. The first truth that we see here is that the cross is sufficient for your sin. Verse 19 reminds us, if you repent of your sin, that if you turn to Christ, your sin will be blotted out. Through the work of Jesus, you have the opportunity to return to fellowship with the Holy God. God is perfect and we're imperfect, so we're unable to to be in his presence. We're as good as dead, but, but God has a plan. And the cross can cover any multitude of sins. The cross can remove any gap between you and God. The cross can change everything. 
And listen, far too often, we come into this place, and we all put on an act. Like we've got everything figured out. And we just kind of assume that we all have everything figured out. The world's really broken, and we're all, we're all fine. We're all doing just fine. And let me, let me say, let me say, if you don't have everything figured out, that's okay. If you don't have everything figured out, you're in the right place. Let me add to that. If, if you've never trusted in Christ, you're in the right place. If you've never accepted the gospel, you're in the right place. If, if you've never given your life to him, you're in the right place. And he's patiently waiting for you. And understand that, that Peter is, is talking to some men who were complicit in, in murdering Jesus and inviting them to come be his brothers in Christ, which, which assures us that Christ came for the criminals, the murderers, the adulterers, the liars, the cheaters, the thieves, the arsonists, the politicians, and the YouTubers. And he came for you too. Everyone in between. The cross is sufficient for your sin. And the second truth we see here is that Jesus will return and make all things new. So the cross is sufficient for your sin right now. And then we look to the future. That Christ will return and make all things new. Starting in verse 20. Peter says, Times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all the things about which God spoke by mouth of his holy prophets long ago. In one of our adult Sunday school classes is studying Genesis, and I've heard they're, they're having lots of great discussion in that class. And In chapter 3 of Genesis, we see the first sin in the history of the world, what we often call the fall of man. But right after that first sin, we see our first gospel message. Genesis 3, verse 15, as, as God is, is punishing Satan for his part in Adam and Eve's sin, he told him, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise his heel, but he shall bruise your head. In other words, Satan would inflict pain on the cross, but Christ would bring a final blow when he rose again on the third day. Satan would win some battles, but Christ would ultimately win the war. And one day, he'll return and create a new heaven and new earth, and he'll rule over it for all eternity. Now, if we, if we kept going in the text, we'd see that Peter and John get a great response of the people that are in the crowd, but the, the Sadducees and the priest were not very happy. So they run up and they seize him and they take him to go be before the Sanhedrin. Scripture says they were greatly annoyed by his teaching, but Luke recounts in the, in the fourth verse of the next chapter that many of those who heard the word believed. Luke would estimate a little bit later that the total number of men in the church 
was around 5,000, which means 3,000 came to follow Christ at Pentecost, and around 2,000 came to follow Christ on this day. And I just want to circle back to where we started and remind you that these 2,000 men coming to faith in Jesus started with a lame beggar. Started with a man who when he was healed, he couldn't help but praise his God and share his testimony. And his experiences opened the door for Peter to clearly explain the gospel of Jesus Christ to the bewildered crowd. The biggest thing that I want you to, to take away from this story is that God used someone ordinary to do something extraordinary. God loves using ordinary people. Christ changed the course of human history with 12 disciples who were nothing more than fishermen and IRS agents. And he can use you to influence the people in your life. So never discount the eternal significance of extending an invitation to church, of saying a prayer for your one, of having a conversation about the gospel over lunch. So when I think back over my life, I can point to numerous family members, friends, mentors, small group leaders, Sunday school teachers, coaches, and RA volunteers who pointed me to Jesus. And they may look at my life and consider their roles to be small, but God used all of it for something big. God doesn't require extraordinary things from you. He will gladly use your ordinary gifts talents, and abilities to further his kingdom. If we'll be faithful, he'll be faithful. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. And we love this story of this man who's just living in complete brokenness and despair and is instantly turned on a dime to hope and joy. And with that hope and joy, he, he shares his story and allows uh, Peter to share the gospel. And many brothers come to faith in Christ. Father, throughout human history, we know that this game plan has been run countless times and we know this game plan will continue to be run countless times and, and father we know that you don't inquire you don't require extraordinary from us which is good because we're not very extraordinary we have a very average pastor we have an older congregation We, we don't have top-rate worship music. You know, Lord, we don't have all the bells and whistles that many churches have. And, and sometimes we feel like if we could do this thing better, this thing better, then, then the levy will break and people will come. But Father, help us stay focused on stories like these that remind us that all we have to do is be faithful. Just to be faithful to do what you've called us to do, to be faithful, to minister to those who are right in front of us. Father, help us to stay in our lane. 
And Father, when you provide the opportunity, help us to be bold to share the gospel. Help us to be bold to share our testimony of what you've done in our lives. Father, we love you. We love this story. We love your word. And we thank you for your son. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.